This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're, uh, we've actually, in, in this text, come to the end of a major section in the Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that we started looking at together early in the year and going to carry us through uh, roughly the end of the summer. We've been looking at this section of the sermon where Jesus is trying to describe what people who are in his kingdom will look like. Think of him as describing a family brand. My family just returned, uh, as many of you know, from a a trip to England uh, for the last month or so. One of the things we noticed when we were doing a lot of touring around and looking at old castles and what have you is that, especially in the medieval times, dynasties, kingdoms, they loved to brand themselves with these seals. You know, every monarchy, every family of kings would have a certain symbol that represented something about them. So one of them we saw had lions. You can imagine what he wanted to communicate by those lions, right? Don't mess with me. King of all the animals, powerful, vicious. Another one had the, uh, the image of a, of, a, of a rose. The Tudor kings had a rose that was their image. I can't figure out what in the world they were trying to communicate by that. They were anything but soft and sweet-smelling. Tudors were brutal, but they chose a rose for their brand. And, and Jesus is doing something pretty similar here in, in, in this sermon, especially in chapter 5. He's trying to say, here's what people who are with me, part of my kingdom, or in the language he's going to use today, part of my family, will be known for. Here's the quick association I want people to have with you. When they hear Christian, when they hear Jesus, I want them to think these things. He's given it to us as a laundry list. And he started it out by saying, well, for, for one thing, people who are with me are going to have a righteousness that's, that's on another level entirely from the most righteous people you can think of, the Pharisees. Because their righteousness was all about the appearances. It was surface level only. It was about doing enough of the law to check off each box and avoid repercussions on themselves, but not about pressing into the holiness of God from a heart that loves him and wants to love what he loves. Your righteousness is not going to be like theirs. Yours is going to be rooted in the heart. You won't need rules in order to obey. You'll want to obey. You'll know how to obey because it's in you, not because it's imposed on you from the outside. So he said things like people and people in his kingdom, they're going to respond to others' flaws differently. Their anger doesn't look the same. They're going to look at others' bodies differently. They don't lust in the same way that other people do. Their word counts for something different. They don't take oaths and use them as a shield for their own dishonesty in the way others do. And all along, as Jesus has been building this portrait, he's been building to what we look at today. He's been building to a portrait of his people where the defining characteristic of them is their love. More than anything else, if you want to know what it's like to be with me, if you want in on the kingdom I'm building, then you've got to accept that your life will be defined by love. It's the primary mark, the primary brand of those who are with him. I want to begin by reading the last several verses of Matthew chapter 5 before we start unpacking it together. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that? I'm going to read uh, verses 43 to 48 of Matthew chapter 5. 
These are the words of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to work our way through this text this morning, not so much as, as room by room through a hallway, going kind of verse by verse by verse by verse, but kind of like an elevator. We start at a high level and then go a level down and then go an e- uh, one level even further. Sometimes when you're working with a short text like this one, you can do that easily. You just take a pass at it, see what you see, take another pass and pull back another layer, and then a third pass to get down to the real nitty-gritty. That's what I want to do this morning. We're going to take three passes over the whole. We want to see the priority of God-like love. Jesus telling us that our love must look like God's if we want to be with him. Then we want to look at the mark of God-like love. What is the distinguishing mark of a love that's like his? And then we'll look at the way to it, how we can actually press into it and pursue it for ourselves this morning. I'm going to start with the priority of God-like love. This is just a real high-level observation here, but I want to start here, especially if you're unfamiliar with Christianity. One of the things you need to notice, just from a quick reading of this, is that Jesus is telling us something that other authors of later writings in the New Testament are going to build on, that, that to be a Christian is to be known by love. That is its priority in the Christian life. You can see this especially in verses 44 and 45, where Jesus says you're supposed to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and the reason is that you can, that, so that you'll be sons of your Father who's in heaven. If you're with this Father, you're going to bear the family resemblance. And this Father is known for an indiscriminate love. He, he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to rise on everybody, no matter what they've done. He has a kind of love that's spread to all. And your love should look like his. Jesus reinforces the same point in verse 48. It's kind of a summary of the whole section in the sermon. That, that a, a, a bare minimum of righteousness is not enough. You need to be perfect because God is your standard. Not a law that's limited, that's bracketed off into, into rules that are pretty easy to obey or at least to recognize who's obeyed and who hasn't. No, that actually, the law is just pointing to something deeper, to a heart that loves what's right, like, like God's heart. You're supposed to be perfect like him. You can see in both of those places, in verse 45 and in verse 48, Jesus is putting God up as the standard for those who are in his kingdom. And he's he's tying God-likeness to love. It sounds a little bit, in verse 45, like he's saying, if you want to be a son of your father, then you've got to love first. Love is sort of the entry fee of getting into this kingdom. I think that's a misreading of it. It kind of sounds like that on the surface, but really what it, other, in other places in this sermon, he's writing to them as if they're already children of God. 
even in verse 48, he, he refers to God as their father. They're in already. So I think what he's saying in verse 45 is not love so that God will love you and you can be in his family, but love so that you show yourself to be a son of this father because children resemble their parents. If you're with him, this love is where that shows up. Jesus is setting up here in his own words what's going to be the main theme of his followers in other parts of the New Testament. John, another gospel that tells about Jesus' life and his teaching. In that gospel, John records Jesus saying much the same thing. Chapter 13, he tells his disciples, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. They'll see your love and they'll know you're with me. Then John, in his letters to the early church later on, written a little bit later on, picks this theme up in in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to what John says there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. See the same exact idea? That if we're born of him, if we're in his family, if he's our father, then love is where this shows up. Anyone who does not love God, John says, does not know God, because God is love. That's putting it starkly, isn't it? You can't be with him in his family and not love like he did. It's cause and effect. It's there every time. Guaranteed. And then final example, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul takes three things that we commonly identify as, as the brand of religion. Right? Uh, uh, that what, what, are, what, is, what is a religious person known for? What should stand out about them? Sometimes we think it should be religious experience. We should think it's like the emotional uh, the emotional experience of, of worship or powerful evidence of God's spirit in them. Think of the charismatic movement. You look at experience as a mark of genuine religiosity, right? Sometimes we think it's knowledge. You'll know that they're genuine, that they're the real article because of how good they are at describing the ideas of Christianity. Boy, they have mastered those systematic theology textbooks and they can spit it out to you not just their own views, but all the views of other people who disagree with them and why those people are wrong. And when, when somebody knows their Bible and their theology like that, you know their genuine article. We think that sometimes. Or sometimes we think you'll know it because of the way they serve. I mean, those people care about the least of these. They are putting their money where their mouth is. They're out there getting their hands dirty. That shows they're the genuine article. Well, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's just the first three, three verses. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, think religious experience, powerful manifestations of something going on inside of you. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just annoying people. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I've got it going on up here, But have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, I'm not just getting my hands dirty, I'm laying everything on the line. But have not love, I gain nothing. What's Paul saying? Same thing Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5. Love is the mark of those who are with him. 
got to see the priority of God-like love. Right here in this text, we are looking into the heart of Christian identity. Love is the brand. And there is a connection, an inevitable connection, between being God's child and showing God's love. What Jesus has come to here at the end of chapter 5 is not just another example of things that will be true in the lives of those who are with him. But what he's come to is the essential characteristic of those who are with him. That's the priority of God-like love. The main point of this text is on another level down. The main point of Jesus in, in this text is to show us the defining mark of God-like love. So what we've said is, if you're with Jesus, you'll be known by your love. Now what he's going to say is, not just any kind of love. There's a very specific kind of love that shows you're with him. There's a very particular mark of God-like love. It's radically distinctive. It's unnatural and it's therefore unmistakable. The love that marks off a follower of Jesus is a love for enemies. The love that marks off a genuine follower of Jesus is love for enemies. And we're not just talking here about remote enemies. About nameless members of hostile nations or violent groups. As important as it is to Avoid lumping together all people that are hostile to our nation and hating them. Jesus is talking about that. He's challenging us on that. But he's also talking about something far more. To just do that, to just not blame members of groups that are hostile towards us, is only scratching the surface on the kind of love for enemies Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about anyone who doesn't love you well in return. When you think enemy here, think anybody who doesn't love you well in return. You recognize who's with Jesus when you look at and recognize who it is that they're loving. This, this, uh, these, these verses we're looking at this morning, they're kind of the opposite side of the coin that we started to consider last week. In verses 38 to 42, we talked about the importance of Jesus' followers not retaliating when they're mistreated. So think of that as a kind of negative point. Somebody hurts you. Your instinct is to go back at them, to give as good as you've got, maybe even give them more. That's the natural instinct in all of us. Jesus said last week, in the passage we looked at last week, my followers don't do that. They just take it. They absorb the blow to their honor, their dignity. Their lives. This week he's making a more positive point. Not only do they take it, they actually respond not with, not in the same way that they were, that, that they were hurt. They, they actually respond in love. And he's making a positive point. It's not just what they don't do to those who mistreat them. It's what they do that shows who, who they are. That shows they're with me. They've got to actively love those who haven't loved them well. In other words, friends, a love that's only given where it's received isn't the kind of love that glorifies God. It doesn't resemble Him. It doesn't show His power. 
Now, don't take my word for it. I want to walk you through the details and show you how often. That simple point comes up in every part of this passage. That the mark of those who are with Jesus is their love for people who don't love them well. Shows up all through it. Jesus is, what Jesus is going to say, I'm going to walk through here in just a second. Let me set this up one more time. What Jesus is going to say is that there's, there's really a kind of love out there that isn't distinctive at all. It doesn't mark off one kind of person from another one. It's a basic human characteristic. It's just basic to being human. It's as if you, know, if, as if you were to find it's, you know, 100,000 years from now or some such, some, it's like, let's say humans have gone extinct and you're in some sort of, na- I don't know what kind of creature you'd be, but you'd be in some sort of natural history museum and there's an exhibit on the human. And there's a little car that explains what they were like and some sort of skeleton there, fossilized skeleton that shows something like the shape of them. And maybe the card says something like, what is, what is a human? A human was a relatively long and slender body walking on two legs, had two ears and one nose and a couple of eyes and a mouth. Large brain and loves those who love them back. That's what it is to be human. A human is one who loves those who love them back. That's just basic humanity. That is not distinctive. Look at how Jesus makes this case. He's quoting from a misuse of the law in verse 43. You've heard it was said you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Those that Jesus was writing to knew that the law said you had to love your neighbor but what they thought that meant was love people who were sort of in their circle. People who loved them well. People who looked like them. Lived like them. Valued what they valued. People who were living in solidarity with their communities. That's what neighbor means. And if the law says to love your neighbor, then it must mean, if you flip that around, that you, that you hate your enemy. You love these people, so you don't love these people. They're added to the law here, but that was the interpretation they were working with. Jesus flips it, though. I say to you, no, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You knew it was important to love your neighbor, Jesus is saying. You thought that that meant you didn't have to love anybody else, especially not your enemy. But I'm telling you, if you're with me, your enemy is precisely who you'll love. Who is it? Then he explains why. Verse 45. In my kingdom, you're sons and daughters of God. You will look like your father. And how does your father show love? What does he do? He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. Verse 45. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He gives, provides for, lovingly takes care of even people who don't see him as their provider. Even people who are taking what he provides and using it to build themselves up and maybe even to tear down others. That's who God is. That's what his love looks like. So who is it that just loves, who lo- just loves those who love them? If, that's, if you're only loving your neighbor... Who is it that you're resembling? Not God. Who is it that you're resembling? Jesus really gets their goat here. 
Jesus says in verse 46, don't even tax collectors do the same? And in verse 47, he says, don't even Gentiles do the same? See, these were were loaded terms in ancient Israel. These two categories were the the very enemies that Jesus' audience would have thought they were justified in hating. The tax collectors were Jewish people who had collaborated with the Roman Empire, taking what they could get from their own people, taking the taxes that the Roman Empire demanded, but also skimming extra off the top, basically kicking their fellows when they were down and making themselves rich by the pain and exploitation of their own people. That's who the tax collectors were. Even tax collectors love those who love them. And who were the Gentiles? Well, to the Jews, the Gentiles were, they were pagans. They were people who didn't have the law. They didn't know what God was like. What they had was instinct. They just did what came natural. And even the Gentiles know how to love people who love them back. What Jesus is saying, I mean, he's getting them here. He's exposing irony, even hypocrisy underneath their, their claim that they could hate their enemy. What he's saying is that when you only love people who love you, then the one you're reflecting is your enemy. Not your father. In my kingdom, you imitate your father. You bear his resemblance. And that'll show up best when you love people who don't love you well in return. But friends, there's a crucial point here. We, we, we gotta, we've got to see this point to avoid a major misconception that can deceive us And set us up for communities that reflect less than the beautiful, radical, distinctive love of Jesus. Here's the misconception. We can lock in on parts of the New Testament that call on us to love in a sacrificial way. To empty ourselves out, to deny ourselves on behalf of others. To look at how Jesus loved us on the cross and give up our lives to loving other people. The New Testament does talk about that. It talks about the scale of our love being one way we bring glory to him. When our love is as radical and and self-giving as his was. But if we leave it there, then the image of his love that we're giving to each other and to the world, it falls far short of its full beauty and power. Because it isn't just that we're willing to give up ourselves for others. A huge piece to the beauty and distinctiveness of God's love for us is not just the scale of his love, but the object of his love. Who he loves is what makes his love powerful. And it's when we love the same kind of objects that God loves that we really resemble our Father who is in heaven. It's possible to be deeply generous to be known by your friends for your sacrificial love, to have a reputation in your own circles as one who is hospitable, open, who will hold nothing back from those they love, who have needs. To be known as a great person, easy to get along with for your friends. 
and still be deeply selfish. The question isn't just how much you give, but who you give to. See, see when, there, when there's a clear difference between how you love someone in your people, so to speak, your crowd, your circle, and how you love others who don't fit that circle for one reason or another. When there's a clear difference, then your love isn't God-like and it isn't fulfilling the law. It's possible to do amazing acts of love for your family or your friends or those who are like you. It's possible to have a life that's defined by grace and in your own circle, but, but have a life that's also full of personal conflict, of relationships that end on a sour note. To have always going at any given time in your life relationships that are unsettled, not peaceful. To be both gracious and understanding towards people that you're close to and bitter gossiping about people that you're not. To, to have a life that's, that's got two kinds of relationships in them. The full-on mutual adoration, where you just love these other people, and they just love you, and it's so sweet and powerful. Or, dislike and distance, one or the other. One of the things that makes God's children show up in the world is when you can't really tell whether they like somebody based on how they're loving them. There's nothing distinctive, we've said, about a love that only goes out towards people who return it. The claim that such a love represents our father would be like claiming my son shows he's a McCullough because he's got two ears and two arms and two legs. That's not distinctive about our family. All humans have that. That sort of love, the sort of love that's only given to those who return it, that's a transaction. It's just a trade. You know what? It's, here's, here's the way one commentator put it. It's just another form of retaliation. The text we looked at last week, Jesus is saying, my followers don't retaliate. Somebody mistreats them, they don't mistreat in, in return. They take it. But now that we're flipped over to not what they won't do, but what they will do, Jesus is calling out another kind of retaliation, really. To give love only when you receive it. To always try to come out equal. Here's the way John Stott put it in his commentary on the sermon. Retaliation is the way of the world. Revenge on the one hand and recompense on the other. Paying back injuries and paying back favors. Then we're quits. I guess that's a British reference. I don't know what that means. Then we're quits. We're no man's debtors. We keep even with everybody. But it's the device of the proud who cannot bear to be indebted to anybody. Christian love is not payment for good treatment. It is a gift given to those who need it. I love the way Bonhoeffer put it. Love must not ask if it's being returned. Instead, 
it seeks those who need it. That's the only criteria for a Christian. This is what sets Christian love apart. It's what makes it beautifully godlike and distinctive. So where do you begin loving the enemies in your life like this? I hope by now you've already started to reconceptualize who your enemies are, according to Jesus here. Your enemies are not religious extremists who want to blow you up. They may be, but that's not who he's talking about. Your enemies are people at work, maybe even in this church or in your own family. People on your street, people that you used to be friends with but now maybe aren't close to anymore. People who haven't loved you well. That's your enemy. Jesus is saying, if you want to be with me, you're going to love them. That's how everybody will know that you're with me. Where do you start? I'm going to take our cues from the text. We're going one floor down. I'm going to take our cues from the text, from the model that Jesus has put in front of us. And here, I'm going to give you two Two steps. These are big picture steps. You're going to need your friends to come up with more specific ones. Here's two big picture ones. The way to God like love. Here's the first one. First, you've got to look for ways to serve them whether you like them or not. See, you can't force yourself to feel good about somebody else. I think, I think we tie love too, way, way, way too much to feelings in our culture. Love is an expression of something I feel when I think about or interact with you. But in the Bible, that's not the way it is. Often it comes with feelings of affection, but that's not what love is. It's, it, it's very active. It's, a, it's a, a self-giving for the good of the person that you love. Jesus doesn't care how you feel. Not, I mean, he does, but not here. Jesus isn't asking you to feel different. That, that's a dead-end command. You can't will yourself towards feeling different about somebody. You can't make yourself have a natural or an easy connection with others. You can't force yourself not to regret that they don't love you well in return or that they aren't sensitive to you or that they aren't plugged into what you need. You can't change the way you feel. But when we think about our feelings, just natural, instinctive feelings towards someone else, we're still talking about the realm of nature talking about things that are just as true for the Gentiles and the tax collectors and whoever else as they are for God's children. When we talk about love, we're not talking about feelings, but we're talking about service to people, whether you like them or not. Jesus pointed, I think Jesus pointing to the way that God the Father loves the just and the unjust points us in that direction. He provides for, he offers tangible help to people who don't deserve it. Every day that he gives them breath, that he gives them a roof over their head and food for their bellies, he is loving the just and the unjust. Here's another British pastor commenting on this sermon. I think it's so helpful. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. His sermon on this passage, he said, liking is something which is much more natural than loving. We are not called upon to like everybody. We can't. It's ridiculous, he says, to command anyone to like another person. Liking depends on physical constitution and temperament and a thousand and one other things. It doesn't matter. But you can be commanded 
to love. And that begins with actions that do them good. So what opportunity do you have this week to take some action that will benefit your enemy? Jesus has put God the Father as a model here in front of us. But thanks be to God, this isn't the last of the New Testament. We have, we have the, the most brilliant, powerful, and crystal clear example of what God's love is like we could ever want in looking at what Christ did for us. When we were still enemies, hostile to God, neglecting his goodness to us, pretending as if we were the reason for our lives and not his glory. It was at that moment when we had nothing for him that he chose not to pull back but to enter in, to draw closer, to come down in the person of Jesus. Jesus in another gospel in Mark chapter 10 was having this conversation with some of his disciples, some of his best friends. He's on the way to his death for them. They want to talk about who gets to sit next to him in the kingdom of heaven. They're still completely focused on natural things like reputation and status, like how we'll be viewed by other people. And they want to use Jesus to get what they always wanted for their lives anyway, which was to be a cut above. And Jesus responds to them. It's clear, it's challenging, but it's kind. He tells them, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to take us from this plane where we really only care about ourselves and to put us into a a way of being by his grace and his power that looks like his where we get honest to goodness, joy, and pleasure out of giving ourselves to other people even when they don't deserve it. That's what he did for us. Friends, the gospel message is that you don't have to love him well to be loved well by Jesus. You could have lived every day of your life up until this very day doing your own thing as if he doesn't exist. And if you will turn to him this morning, he will have you. His death is sufficient to cover everything you've done. You are not too far gone. If you will repent and believe in him, you can be saved today. Being with him, though, is going to mean taking on a love that's a lot like his. Self-giving service to people, whether they deserve it or not. That's the first thing you can do. The first part of this path towards a God-like love is just to start doing good and trust God with your feelings. To look on Jesus as your model and let his goodness towards you fuel your own love for other people. Now here's the second thing. we close with this. The second thing you'll do to love your enemies right now before anything else changes about your relationship with them or about how you feel towards them. The second thing you'll do is pray for them. This is what Jesus suggests in verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One commentator pointed out that this is the the highest command, the final one. It's almost like Jesus has been climbing a ladder rung by rung about how you will treat people who aren't good to you 
if you're with me. And he started out by saying, you'll turn the other cheek. You'll take another insult. When they insult you, you let them insult you again. You don't retaliate. When they try to take something away from you, you give them even more than they're trying to take. When they exploit your time and your energy, you just give them more. You go the extra mile. When they have needs and more needs and more needs and more needs and they just only ever ask and they never give back, you give to the one who asks. That's what you do. You love your enemies. You do good to them, just like God who sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And now he reaches the pinnacle. He's been climbing this ladder of how you love people who aren't worth loving. And at the very top, he says, you'll pray for them. Now, maybe that didn't land on you as something radical. Maybe you need to sit with this one for a little bit longer. Let me get you started with that. When you pray for someone, you aren't just taking what they put onto you. You're, you're actually becoming their advocate. When you pray for them, you're standing in for them before God. You're representing them in all of their ugliness, asking God to change them. You are seeking their redemption. You're, turning an ad, you're taking someone who had been your adversary and you're becoming their advocate. And sometimes it can be tough to know what to pray for them. If that's true for you, look at Matthew 6. Look at Jesus' Lord's Prayer. Pray that for your enemy, whoever it is you're thinking about right now. Pray Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13 for them. Pray that they would hallow God's name, that their lives would bring God glory. Pray that they will embrace God's kingdom. That they would love to do his will on earth just like it's done in heaven. That that would give them joy and drive them to be different from what they are. Pray that God will give them their daily bread. That he'll take care of all their needs. Whatever it is they need to be, to be healthy and thriving in their lives. That he'll give that to them. Pray that God will, give, will forgive them for what they've done. Maybe even to you. Pray that God will forgive them for what they did to hurt you, even as you pray for the ability to forgive them yourself. Pray against their temptation to evil. Chances are, if they've hurt you, they're going to be tempted to hurt you again if you're still in a relationship with them. Pray that doesn't happen. Pray that God will give them the strength to stop hurting you. Pray for conviction of sin and for the power of God's Spirit to overcome it. To pray like this for people who aren't loving you well is to obey Jesus. That is reason enough to do it. But I think what you'll find is that as you obey Him, as you pray prayers like this for the people who have hurt you, you'll find that over time, your feelings actually will start to change. That you'll start to want the things that you're praying for them that you'll start to actually feel love for them because you were obedient in doing loving things for them. And ultimately, friends, the only reason you should do this with any kind of hope is that Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. 
That's me and you. Our sins drove him to that cross. When he died, he died with a vision of you and everything you would ever do against him. He hung on the cross as long as he did and no longer because he had your specific sins against him to cover. And he stayed there until it was done. And while he hung there, he prayed. He prayed for those who nailed him to the cross. And the letter to the Hebrews tells us that right now, ever since he was raised from the dead, he lives to intercede for you. You can face the task of loving people who don't love you well with hope because you can trust Jesus to pray to his Father and yours that you will have everything you need to do that well. That he would never ask of you something he won't also give you the ability to do. You pray in hope even when you don't feel it because you trust Jesus is cleaning up those prayers and presenting them to the Father who could never turn him away who never says no to Jesus. He's offering them as his prayers for you every day. So this is not hopeless. It's supernatural, but it's not hopeless. He calls you to love your enemies and he will help you to do it. Father, if you don't, then we're all hopelessly stuck in our own sin, our own failure, our own self-centered love that only loves as good as it's returned, and, and we want to be free from that. That's not, a, that's not a joyful way to live. We want to be free. So we pray for the power of your Spirit to change our hearts, to root out bitterness that's there and replace it with compassion and empathy to soften whatever stone has firmed up there and give us hearts that love those even who hurt us and long to see them redeemed. We pray that your word this morning would move us in that direction, that our conversations with each other after this would help pour fuel on that fire and that you would make in our community a clear and lasting testimony to your love and what it's like. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.